You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. For the final time of 2018, we welcome you to the program. Uh, this is 3CR. This is in Psychedelia. My name is Nick Wallace. Uh, Ash Blackwell also, well, not in the studio today because it is just about the last day of 2018. Uh, it's been very quiet here at 3CR. Uh, a lot of programs are, a lot of programmers on on summer breaks. There are also um, uh, some summer programs, summer specials on. So please um, check out the website 3cr.org.au for more info. Ash, you're on the line there. Afternoon, I am off uh, off to a New Year's festival. Yeah, I'm on my way to Tanglewood. I'm kind of squished in the corner of a car, surrounded by eskies and sleeping bags and things right now. Very familiar uh, pilgrimage. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so for, for our final show this year, uh, we've got a bunch of uh, little bits and pieces from interviews uh, that we've been doing with, with a wide variety of people across the year. So a bit of a flashback episode, but we've also got, uh, for, for only half the episode, uh, also a chat that we did with Jenny Valentish last week. Uh, we played the first half of our interview where we were chatting with Jenny about uh, her book and her experience uh, last week, um, but... As Jenny is also a uh, journalist herself, uh, we, we, we swapped sides and got her to chat with us. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So we'll hear that a bit later in the program. Uh, but first, let's just have a quick wrap of 2018, um, plus maybe a quick look at the past week in news because, I mean, as you say, Ash, you're off to a, to a music festival for New Year's. A lot of people will be across the state um, partying in, in, in various ways, a number of festivals and then a number of events on, uh, and um, already uh, we've seen, not in Victoria again, but unfortunately this seems to keep happening in, in New South Wales in particular, uh, where another young person has passed away uh, at a festival. Yeah, I read about that this morning. I think, you know, I don't know, like New South Wales have kind of got the most authoritarian approach to this and seem to be having the most incidents. And I'm not sure if that's a, you know, if those two things are related to each other or it's just an unfortunate coincidence. But, you know, it is kind of telling that, that in New South Wales where the government's approach is to double down to create this new new penalty of 25 years if you sell drugs to somebody who then then dies um, and and they're still continuing to have some of the most tragic outcomes it's um uh, as we discussed last week a, a sort of fundamental misunderstanding of how the drug market works because that 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 sort of idea thinks that the people that are doing the supplying in the in the first place um, would be disincentivized by just raising the penalties but uh, I mean the penalties have been raised every couple of years for the past 50 years <laughs> and it hasn't disincentivized people yet and usually the people doing the selling are, are friends to friends so yeah. what's being solved here well yeah and so in this kind of situation what you end up with then is that you've got probably a community of friends and young people and if something tragic happens they've all lost a friend but then they often lose another friend um through the penalties and I don't and imagine so that. You, you end up with a double tragedy. Yeah, 
it doesn't really uh, engender good feelings uh, of, oh, I'm so glad that the government is protecting us and that the police are protecting us. I suspect a lot of people would be harbouring significant resentment that law enforcement then comes along at that tragic time in somebody's life and just adds more tragedy. Well, yeah, and I think that, you know, you're less likely to get a collaborative and cooperative approach with policemen as well. I mean, who wants to actually provide information to the police if all that it's going to lead to is that that more of your friends are going to get in more trouble? So, you know, you get people kind of closing ranks. And, I mean, we're talking about this now as as, um, something that's been ongoing. This is, um, I think, the third or fourth, um, maybe fifth death this season over the past two months but we started the year in much the same way as well um the start of 2018 uh there were a number of uh issues that went went on in fact i'm just looking back um i had a bit of a look over january there was the backpackers in perth that um consumed a, a substance that turned out to be um scopolamine also known as hyacine or something i think um, and there was somebody airlifted from Gippsland early early in January this year. And then um, there were the nine people transported to hospital from Festival Hall on the, I think it was on the 27th of January. So it, um, although we're talking about this now, one year has gone by and, and still we haven't seen a lot of progress on this. We, we did see uh, there was a trial of pill testing that happened at Groove in the Moo in the ACT uh, earlier this year. Um, and there's been a lot of work to, to try and get another trial happening. But in terms of things that have happened and made a difference, we're still in the same part of the discussion, it feels. Yeah, it's, um, it's unfortunate here in Victoria that there hasn't been more movement from the Andrews government that just got re-elected, you know, in a landslide. Um and, and they had to defend things like the supervised injecting room during the election campaign. So, you know, the fact that they're still so stubbornly refusing to act on this is really disappointing. I hope that next year we'll see a change in that. Uh, one of the starts to our year, uh, well, I mean, if you count the year starting in late January, <laughs> is Rainbow Serpent Festival, which is uh, uh, coming up in late January, Australia Day weekend, uh, well, as it stands at the moment. Um, and we'll be there. We'll be taking the show there uh, and and having a panel discussion uh, there. We were at Rainbow Serpent Festival last year, as we were the year before and the year before that. Uh, and actually, I'll, 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 during January, I'll also be playing last... Uh, well, it will be last year's, once it's January, the 2018 Rainbow Serpent uh, uh, panel discussion because... Um, <laughs> and that one was uh, entitled Going Around the Twist because um, at that point, we were still, you know, still having the same discussions that we'd had a year before. There are progressive steps that happen along the way, but, geez, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of cycling. I think that's the uh, that's the road of the activist, really, isn't it? You got to stay the course, and eventually you win. Uh, so I think one of the other one of the other sort of themes for the year was um, the the uh, supervised injection room in in North Richmond beginning operation, and um, all reports so far are that it's been incredibly successful. Um, people are seeing people injecting in their in their properties less, there's less discarded needles, and there's many overdoses have been reversed. Uh, and 
quite a lot of people referred on to services as well. And um, perhaps another uh, positive that we should point out uh, is the effect that AOD Media Watch, aodmediawatch.com.au, is having on media reporting. Uh, You caught up with Dr Stephen Bright recently, Ash, but we haven't played that interview yet. That'll be be coming for you in January. But uh, there are a number of contributors to AOD Media Watch uh, and uh, they've really helped to sort of shift things around a bit. And this is uh, Greg Denham from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum and also Law Enforcement Against uh, Prohibition or Law Enforcement Action Partnership, if you want to change the acronym halfway through, <laughs> uh, uh, talking a little bit about um, about poor reporting in the mainstream media but about how this is being addressed. The, the, the language that was used in terms of um, describing people um, who are u- using methadone programs was just um, just um, awful, and um, they were talking about people getting high, driving their vehicles, dangers to the road. You know the, the madness of having people using methadone and um, and then going off and, and, and driving vehicles. There's no um, evidence at all that methadone um, you know impairs driving. Um, there's been a number of uh, papers around that, and uh, it was just a a way to exploit a horrible incident um, over the Christmas break where. Mm. A, um, a young man was driving a car and, and um, there was an accident and, and there hasn't been a coronial inquest at this stage. So, you know, at this stage, the cause of the accident hasn't been determined. So a lot of this is just purely guessing that the methadone caused... What they're saying is, or inferring, is that methadone caused that accident. So um, so um, it was and just a horrible piece of um, media. And maybe just, just for context for those um, who might not have heard of methadone before or aren't quite sure what the program uh, is about, um, methadone is used for... Yeah, people who are opiate dependent, physically opiate dependent, and if they've been using heroin, for example, which is an opiate for quite a while, they become dependent. If they want to either stop their um, heroin use or, or get off heroin, they go on to an opiate substitution program. Um, for many people, that is methadone. There are other types of um, opiate substitutions, but um, methadone is very, very popular. It's been around for a long, long time, since the 60s. It's um, widely prescribed. I think there's 14,000 people in New South Wales and about 13.5 in Victoria who are on the methadone program. It basically basically stabilises people. Um, it's obviously a legal drug, so uh, they don't have to go and score heroin in the black market anymore. So it reduces injecting of drugs, it redu- of heroin, obviously. It reduces um, crime. People, you know, their lives are stabilised. They can get into housing. You know, a whole range of issues in their lives which, you know, are a result of, I guess, their heroin use, um, the, the, the illicit activity can be dealt with once they're in the methadone program. So if there's support around counselling and other social welfare health services, methadone is a very good way of, of assisting that person to deal with that, um, you know, the consequences of heroin use. Because as we know, the, the, the majority of harm that comes from heroin use is often the fact that it's illegal and people have to access it through the, you know, black market, illicit drug network. And in the end, it can become a whole lifestyle issue for a person that, in terms of their heroin use. So um, it's a way of stabilising and getting that person's life, I guess, to some form of not what we might describe as normal behaviour or, or reasonably well-functioning behaviour. And from my understanding from speaking to uh, friends that have been on or are on the methadone program, it's not something, it's not a narcotic type drug. It's it's something, uh, I think I'm going to get my pharmacy pharmaceuticals wrong here, but I think it's an antagonist of the opiate, opiate receptors, uh, which means that essentially it, it sort of blocks those cravings so people still get still get that that uh that attachment to the receptor which blocks the cravings uh but they're not 
getting high per se. No. It's, um, no. it's just to make that go away because uh, the opiate craving is going to be incredibly strong for people. And that's the point that's of right. this, to get to, to stop that. Exactly. So, But A Current Affair has just insinuated that there's all these people driving around on methadone as if it's you know driving around with needles sticking out your arm full of heroin. And I, I actually missed the episode right. <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, it's available online. It's It's... The episode itself is a lot different from the actual promo. The promo is just appalling, and it's mm. got all of the you know the the language and and the sorts of stereotyping and, and inaccurate information that we just discussed. The actual program itself is a bit more measured, um, but it certainly is just uh, you know in terms of media, it's just the sort of thing that AOD Media Watch focuses in on because it, it's really you know it, it does it it. it drives the stereotypes of stigma and discrimination that we see all the time with illicit drug use and uh, that's the sort of thing that we we are looking to address through AOD Media Watch. Yeah, I think that that's something you've started to see a little bit of that even among some of the mainstream media um, recent reporting on that that uh, story on nitrous oxide I think it was, was it from Channel 10 or something Yeah, Channel 10 one of the, yep. Yeah, and, and like that was actually not bad which no. is something that you'd don't see so often. Usually, it's just the standard kind of scare campaign sort of nonsense. And um, this time, it was a little bit more nuanced. One of the um, important uh, d- changes that I think is 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 happening in in the drug discourse is that um, you'll get mainstream media actually seeking out those uh, people who actually know what they're talking about because there's, there's just this overabundance of talking heads who are usually from a, um, a law enforcement perspective, don't have any particular uh, specialty knowledge about uh, drugs. They know the drug laws and they know that they're meant to enforce them, um, but that's, it's not a very nuanced discussion then and we don't really get to uh, you know, understand the complexities of drug issues through the lens of a, a first responder police officer. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. I called into Conservative Talkback Radio just a couple of days ago and um, was surprised how much kind of room they gave me to, to share my perspective and... Um, they, they actually took my number at the end of that because I think that they recognise that they do only kind of regurgitate one side of the story. And I think one of the reasons for that is people on our side of the fence tend to avoid those broadcasters or publications. Um, but, you know, like like writing a letter to the editor for the Herald Sun can be a really useful thing. If it gets published, then... Um, you're kind of you're helping to counter that narrative as well, even with a simple comment on Facebook or a call to Talkback Radio. And and it's the sort of thing that we need to have that um that that ability to put aside you know because <laughs> we can always find things to fight about with people, but put put aside some of those things to to come together uh, and and to find common ground because I, I think we do have a lot of cr- common ground in this in the drug policy debate. People generally want people to be in good health and uh, looked after. That's that's really, that's the common ground that we all have. Um, yeah. We have a different path to that and different ideas about that, but we've got common ground. So we Yeah, can... and I think that, like, my experience with engaging with people like that is if you can kind of calm down a bit and, and not be not be angry at people for being ignorant, so to say, like, often they're quite happy to have their, their ignorance kind of... Um, you know, like like have have things explained to them to overcome that. that you know, they recognise that they might not know the issue in a lot of depth, and they're quite happy to become more informed by somebody who can articulate a, a clear argument. 
And it hasn't been uh, always an easy year for uh, drug policy globally. Um, we have seen Rodrigo Duterte as, a, as a, an example of some of the worst uh, in terms like the, the worst leadership around uh, drug policy in the world. He's the f- current Philippines president. Uh, he's been uh, running essentially a, a sort of vigilante war on drug users uh, where uh, police but also members of the public have been encouraged to kill people um, with no judicial process whatsoever and, and where this sort of thing has been happening uh, across the Philippines. I think the number is now in the tens of thousands of people uh, who have been killed. Um, a lot of people have been coerced into treatment, which sounds like concentration camps uh and um i mean this is this is the the pinnacle of of bad drug policy uh and i know sometimes on the online discussions you see people going oh we should be more like the philippines or indonesia but i think those people are few and far and and maybe a little bit trolly do they really want that if you if you cruise a little bit Past uh, the Philippines in Asia to Thailand, you've actually seen a shift in the other direction. Now, they used to be quite brutal, like the Philippines. I've heard stories of people being basically taken out of the back of police stations and executed, very Duterte style. Now, they seem to have wound back some of that, and um, I think it was just today or or yesterday they've um, put forward a bill to legalise medical cannabis. So they've kind of already played with that authoritarian game and uh, and are pulling back from it. So I think that um, this coming year in 2019 will be another reopening of the international drug treaties at the United Nations in in March, I think it is. And um, that may see some progress there with countries like Canada legalising cannabis. That's going to put a lot of strain and pressure on that whole system of international drug control to reconsider how it works through a global consensus point of view. Before we get uh, stuck into some of our flashbacks, Ash, uh, any any other um, things this year that you really want to... I mean, there's been a lot. We, we've only covered just a, well, just a small part. Well, I, I may have mentioned it on the show before, but one thing that I want to highlight, especially for our listeners who may not have seen or been aware of this stuff happening... But there's been a lot of work happening behind the scenes, like a lot of a lot of organisations that have been fledgling kind of organisations like the Psychedelic Society and Students for Sensible Drug Policy have spent a lot of this year behind the scenes, really building their, their structure and their systems so that they can expand and be even more effective in 2019. So um, I just... I guess I just want to highlight for people that um, we haven't been idle, uh, those of us in the activist community, and I think that 2019 is going to start to see some of the fruits of that labour emerge and become more visible for the broader community. So stay tuned. I think 2019 will be a big year for drug law reform in Australia. We're going to take a look back at uh, some of the interviews that we've conducted over 2018 now, and please stay tuned uh, for our uh, discussion with Jenny, where we sort of switch sides and she uh, chats to us. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Digital, Podcasting or Audio On Demand. Interested in mental health issues? Then tune into Brainwaves every Wednesday at 5pm. Brainwaves is a peer-produced and presented program addressing issues that may affect you. 3CR, inclusive radio, making your voice heard.
rap with Young Philly, sing with Fia, breathe with Avi Misra, yodel with Suhart, and much, much more at the Wat Singers Festival, January 11 to 13 at the Abbotsford Convent. Go to bwat.com.au for more info or ring 9417-1983. A 3CR supporter. the year that has been 2018 uh, nearly to an end now and we've pretty well finished it on the uh, recent Victorian state election uh, which saw uh, well I mean some interesting shifts and we'll be talking about this a lot more in the new year we'll be lining up some of the uh, uh, new MPs uh, who were elected this time around to come in and have a chat with us and also people like uh, Fiona Patton who's been on the show a number of times before and is a uh, uh, a strong supporter of sensible drug law reform she was pivotal in getting the drug law reform inquiry uh, up which took most of uh, her last term and was only tabled earlier this year a uh, 650-page report. You can find it online. We'll post it to social media again. And not much has come of it so far uh, because there hasn't been enough time to discuss it outside of that, um, that, that key election campaigning mode. But we are hopeful with Fiona's uh, re-election um, and with hopefully some other uh, members who are on board for sensible, evidence-informed drug law reform um, that we can see the progress of some other of those 50 recommendations that were made uh, in the report. Uh, Fiona Patton uh, joined us a number of times over the year. Uh, This was one of those times uh, where we were chatting uh, about that report and also about a trip to Colorado. I I threw, um, I gave it the most ridiculous terms of reference and when the public servants looked at it, they said, that is a decade of work (laughs) Um, and we don't have a decade. Well, maybe you will have a decade, maybe you will get re-elected, but anyway, um, we don't have a decade. So we looked at... Um, we tried to look at where drug laws were working and and what what different laws there were and what different approaches there were around drug laws. And so in that we've we've received hundreds of submissions from an incredibly broad range of people. We were really fortunate um, as a committee to travel overseas to to Portugal, to Switzerland, uh, to to London. Um, to Colorado. And uh, Portugal in particular is a country that's doing it quite differently. Correct. decriminalised drugs. Yeah, correct. And I think one of the general things that we saw, um, general trends that we saw everywhere, was treating drug use as a health issue. Yes, And not as a criminal one. And I think that that trend, uh, Portugal certainly has led the way and they've, they've... um, I don't think it's radical, but they've done some really great work where they've shifted their focus to to treatment and to helping people rather than locking them up. And most jurisdictions that we went to uh, were following those sorts of lines. And then we also saw um, 
the other areas around law reform uh, in United States and in and in um, Canada, which was around the legalization of cannabis and taking that product out of the criminal market. And and this is what your uh, most the most recent uh, media release from yeah. the office of Fiona Patton has put out. It's actually your tough on crime agenda I yeah. hear. So you're joining the the, the Liberal Party and Labor I, Party look, in their tough on crime. That's right. Yep. If you can't beat them, join them as they say. So I've put the challenge out to them that if they really are tough on crime, then they would adopt our policy which was to 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 legalize and regulate the cannabis market. And how is this tough on crime, Fiona? <laughs> It's really interesting, Nick. Um, so we saw in the Herald Sun that they that they now estimate that the cannabis industry in Victoria is worth somewhere around eight billion dollars. Now, and that's because it's illegal, and that goes to criminals. Mm-hmm. Yes. And those criminals, they don't spend that money on public parks, on public transport, on health systems, and on education, or even in Australia. Or even in Australia, a lot of that money is siphoned out overseas. Mm-hmm. Some of that money is even siphoned into terrorist activities in 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 other jurisdictions. Um, it's certainly it's money that if we removed that out of the criminal trade, we would reduce crime. We also, when you look at the number of arrests um, around drug possession, for example, uh, there was about twenty three thousand arrests uh, for drug possession and drug use in Victoria. Uh, and about 15,000 of those were for cannabis. So the vast majority of people with a, a small amount of small yep. amount of cannabis, are we talking? This is probably not the, the higher amount. That's right. This is a small amount. This is a, a, a possession amount. Yep, possession. So a personal, not trafficking, a not quantity. commercial quantity. Correct. Possession. So I think I'm actually being quite conservative when I say if you take that $8 billion out of the criminal market when you take those thousands of people who were being arrested for for small quantities of of cannabis out of the court system, you will reduce crime by 10%. You will. Mm -hmm. And uh, and something that's quite interesting here is the symbiotic relationship between politicians and the people who are selling these drugs and making lots of money because they need the politicians. They need them to keep it illegal or they will lose their profits. I know. It's, it's, it's an awful symbiotic relationship, Judith. And, you know, our laws work to the advantage of the criminals. They don't work to the advantage of the general public. So one has to ask who's in the criminal's pocket. <laughs> Sorry, yes, well, I, I'm bold and brave. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we, we, we should possibly look at the election donation <laughs> list and see if we've seen any. Well, we know it's happened in the past. We have evidence of it happening in the past. Uh, yeah. Right now, it's it's hard to make those uh, accusations yes. with evidence because yeah. it's, yeah. A, it's a hidden do, thing. Well, it's a black I do market. I qualify but, it. I just yeah. put it as a what, question. What, yep. we, what we do know and what we saw in Colorado, for example, which is probably which has had legal cannabis for quite a number of years now, is that they believe that they have reduced their black market by 90%, which is, you know, I mean, that's, that sits that's, around, that's incredible. That that's sits around where tobacco sits in Australia. Yep. We, in fact, tobacco, we think that we've probably got about a 15% black market in tobacco now. Um, so they've reduced it by 90%. They, that money now goes into that. They're, they're offering free tertiary education in Colorado now because they can afford it. Um, so the money that they are that they are bringing in is is going onto roads. It is going into education. They have not seen an increase in drug use, and importantly, they have been able to regulate 
who has access to cannabis and who sells it. Well, we do not regulate that at the moment. You can't stop a 14-year-old from buying cannabis and you can't stop a criminal from selling it. From politics, policy and law to the science of drugs, we like to cover all the topics on Psychedelia on 3CR. You can listen back to our podcast, head to 3cr.org.au, follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page and subscribe to our podcast there. You can also find it on your favourite podcasting app, whether you use iTunes or a non-Apple-related podcasting app, you should be able to find Encyclopedia on 3CR. The desire to alter consciousness seems to be innate in humanity as well as many other uh, creatures on this planet. Why exactly we have that desire is a question that we will continuously poke and prod, including in 2019, uh, on this show. And to do so, we try to find the uh, guests across Australia who have some expertise in this field to to start to poke and prod it and get some uh, answers to questions or at least uh, better formed questions because sometimes it can be hard to feel around uh, in these areas until you speak to somebody who's really put the time, effort and energy into researching this. And that's exactly what we did when we caught up with uh, Dr. Gary Clark uh, about psychedelics and the mind. I'm Gary Clark. I am a visiting research fellow at the School of Medicine at Adelaide University, and I research paleoanthropology, which is human evolution, um, and specifically brain evolution, with an emphasis on um, psychedelic neuroscience. The default mode network, it's a, it's a uniquely human um, aspect of um, our cognition. It's a kind of um, neural hub, if you like, of different brain regions that that um, operate together. And the def- the default mode network is um, it's it's it, what what they call a um, task negative network. So it's if you, it's it's the part of your consciousness that is active when you're not engaged in a task, you know, you're not fixing your car or whatever, you're, you're sort of just daydreaming. Um, so it's, it's, it's um, sort of when you, when you consciously ruminate upon the conditions of your existence, I suppose, um, and it's, it's very important, but it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that it can cause us a lot of problems. For example, the default mode network is is involved in our ability to project ourselves into the future and imagine future scenarios, um, which helps us plan our lives and would, you know, for very ancient humans, would have helped them plan hunting expeditions and the the making of weapons and things like that. And you can also imagine um, events from the past, so you can can reflect on what's happened in the past. Um, And it also is involved in theory of mind, which is the ability for us to have thoughts about thoughts. Um, so we can have thoughts about the thoughts that someone else has about someone else and the thoughts that they have about us personally. So it's this kind of metacognitive capacity that we have, um, but it can sort of become overheated, if you like, and, and cause, us, cause us problems. You can, you can um, ruminate upon things too much and, and overact Overactivity of the default mode network has been implicated in psychopathology and depression when people when people are really kind of you know internally ruminating on the on their lives and it can cause them a lot of stress. In terms of psychedelics, the default mode network is um, 
thought to be associated with the ego complex um, that we kind of get from depth psychology coming from Freud and um, into Jung. Um, and psycho psychedelics have been shown to um, uh, basically reduce activity in the default mode network and, and um, stop this kind of constant internal rumination that causes people so much stress. And it's by, by altering um, activity in the default mode network, it's been found, psychedelics have been found to produce quite um, significant therapeutic outcomes. See, the, the default mode network is segregated off from other brain regions. So you might have deeper um, subcortical and um, emotional brain regions, um, and the default mode network is kind of segregated off from them, um, and it kind of operates in its own kind of um, its own kind of segregated neural hub. Now, what what psychedelics do is they 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 incre increase what is called global connectivity. So, instead of the default mode network kind of operating. Um, uh, on its on its own, if you like, it starts to communicate with other brain regions. So you start to get increases in global connectivity, where, for example, connections between the default mode network, this kind of higher um, executive function, um, connections between that and say the visual cortex and um, deeper subcortical brain regions, such as the parahippocampus and um, these brain regions that seem to be associated with altered states of consciousness, the, the default mode network starts um, communicating with those regions a great deal more. And we think that's possibly what, what produces the, the, um, the therapeutic outcomes because there's, there's increases in a kind of... Um, Greater, greater integration between the different subsystems in the brain, if you like. Um, so th that, that's, that's possibly how reduced activity in that region may result in um, greater global activity in the, in the brain as a whole. And I think there's um, a sense that the, the visual hallucinations that you experience in psychedelics is almost like the, you're moving in to the psychedelic state and it's as you go further in and deeper into the psychedelic state, to the acute state, then you you may um, experience a kind of peak mystical state, um, this kind of boundary dissolving experience. Um, so, in in some sense, the the visual hallucinations that that we associate with them in in Western culture may not really be the most important aspect of them in terms of their use in in traditional cultures and um, more ancient human cultures um, going back possibly 7,000 years. Some of the evidence in the archaeological records suggests their use, is use in Africa going back 7,000 years. Um, so I would, I would say that it's, that it's in, an, in another sense, I think the traditional peoples often talk, talk about psychedelics as teachers, that the plants are teachers, and it's, it's almost not the, well, the, the, the actual acute psychedelic state, this boundary dissolving state of kind of um, or peak mystical mystical experience that's important but it's 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 almost the kind of educational trajectory that um, you're you you kind of enter once you've had an experience like that and how how the psyche can become the psyche can become more integrated and whole if you like over a period of time as as a result of um, continued use of psychedelics within a within a religious and sacred context from the weird wonderful world of psychedelia 
to the more mundane and oft forgotten drug world of tobacco and nicotine. Nicotine being the uh, addictive psychoactive compound in tobacco that people keep going back to those cigarettes for more. Although we've seen a huge drop-off in the number of people uh, smoking, uh, we are seeing strategies increasingly implemented to try and reduce the uh, harms associated with tobacco. Uh, Those strategies include things like raising the price uh, consistently for tobacco, and and we seem to be hitting... um, a sort of wall on some of these policies where uh, other problems are starting to emerge, where the black market for tobacco is growing, uh, where people are choosing to smoke tobacco and use a lot more of their money uh, on that rather than eat and, and do these sorts of things. And there is another option, an option which so far has been um, restricted in Australia, restricted in its useful capacity, uh, and it still looks that way as we head into 2019. It's an issue we've been following over 2018, and this is Dr Attila Danko, who was formerly of the New Nicotine Alliance, uh, now uh, running a business trying to help people to stop smoking. The problem is is that, look, vaping is legal if it doesn't have nicotine in it, um, and it becomes illegal once it has nicotine in it. And uh, this makes it really hard, particularly for older smokers um, who can't import stuff from overseas because we all vape, the people who do vape, and most of, almost all of us do vape with nicotine. We simply import it from overseas. And uh, customs law doesn't forbid it. It's only the state-based law which uh, makes it an illegal act with uh, fines up to $45,000 in some states. For an individual? Yeah, wow. and just for possession. And uh, jail terms of up to two years in the ACT, believe it or not. Mm. However, the, it is interesting to note that really this law is very seldom prosecuted. Um, and when we were at the rally in Parliament... Um, it was interesting that there were policemen who were there to guard the parliament from unruly protesters. Uh, some of them were actually vaping with nicotine as well. So is it just that it's a poorly understood part of the law, even though it's there? Yes, yeah, so I, th- I think it is poorly understood. And I think it's more than anything, it's there to try and dissuade entrants from coming into the market, into Australia, to be able to sell through... Uh, convenience stores through um, other places. Um, but the the real um, effect of that law is to just really dampen down the, the Im- immense potential public health benefits of making smoking obsolete. So what are some of the public health benefits? Let's make the argument for those out there that are just going, oh, it's just a replacement for smoking. People just take it up and it's just as bad. What, what do we say to these people? Yeah, well, look, people, as uh, Michael Russell said, Uh, a long time ago, people smoke for the nicotine, but they die from the tar. And so it's the products of combustion, the stuff that happens when you burn any sort of leaf material and inhale it. It uh, causes uh, severe damage to the lung and and to the heart and to other organs of the body. But if you take away the smoke, well, there's, uh, you know, nicotine is probably about as harmful as caffeine. And so that, that's the whole idea about vaping is that you replace one habit which is very harmful to your health and replace it with something which the Royal College of Physicians in the UK says is at least 95% safer. What do you 
There is so much more we've discussed this year that I won't be able to fit into this show today. Please do go and find the podcast, though. A number of the shows from 2018 are already up with more being added all the time. 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page and uh, subscribe to us using your favourite podcasting app. We'll also have a new website launching uh, early next year uh, where we're uh, hoping to... to uh to gather a lot of content uh, in one place in, in an easy to way find uh, easy in a way that's easy for you to find out what's going on in the world of drug policy, drug science, uh, drug law reform more broadly. A lot of these discussions are already happening out there. A lot of them are happening online and have been happening online uh, for many decades. A lot of the knowledge that people have about drugs uh, that they first find is from the internet, from websites like erowid.org or from forums like the Blue Light Forum. But just how uh, how effective are these forums for disseminating information and how widely is that getting into the, compu- uh, into the community? That's a topic we touched on here with Liam Engels. I had two research questions. The first question was, how did participants in an online Australian forum support people who use illicit drugs, discuss and represent drugs, drug use and related policies? And the second question was, what insights did this forum and its participants offer to policymakers concerned with illicit drug harm reduction? So the forum I decided to study was called Australian Drug Discussion, or AusDD for short. It's hosted by bluelight.org and is the largest online drug discussion about Australia. People who use drugs are really disconnected from government drug policy, and ultimately this seems to be because the policy discriminates against them. And a really similar disconnection seems to be happening in medical institutions as well. But despite this, AusDD have their own drug policies in place. AusDD's drug policy was actually doing an excellent job of protecting and supporting people who use drugs without discriminating against them. And I think maybe government should draw on the existing drug policies developed and relied upon by communities that use drugs because they already have these these laws, rules and regulations. Why, Why not use them? prohibition isn't working. So what are some of those laws, rules and regulations? So uh, I think one of the best examples um, from AusDD concerned how to harvest natural highs. Um, So participants in my study said it was important to identify species and seek community input prior to harvesting any natural highs and some good spaces for this were encouraged uh, shroomery.org and the the forums there and also the forums at Sharman Australis. And they also encourage consumers to assist the growth and reproduction of species being harvested uh, and the reproduction and avoidance of endangered species. It's kind of this broader issue prohibition, that is, than just drugs and drug policy. Uh, Prohibition is kind of like this logic that telling people not to do X is a good way of reducing X, but Mm. it never works that simply. I think uh, prohibition is an issue of how society treats difference. Uh, I'd like to see more politics that valued abnormality as a way of increasing power rather than seeing it as deviant and a threat to the status quo. And I actually think the AusDD drug policy was an example of this. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that is native to South America and has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. The Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. 
please visit www.seratedtussic.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Jenny Valentish. I was actually formerly the guest, but since I am the only professional journalist here, we've decided to flip things round and I'm in the hot seat looking at the 70s console. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to interview you guys, Nick and Ash, about about um, your experiences doing the show and your your experiences in the psychedelic sphere, which you know I'm very interested in because I'm always hitting you up to arrange interview sources for me. So and we're always happy to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this year, um, as far as the public's concerned, has been really fast moving in terms of progress in psychedelic trials around the world and psychedelic science. Um, obviously, though, it's actually been a really long, hard slog and it's just there's been a huge wave of media interest. Um, what Do you think the media has a role in actually speeding process along? Um, I, think the, I, uh, I don't know whether they do intentionally, but any time that they cover these stories in an objective way, then, yeah, I think that they do. Like, as soon as the public starts to get wind of the fact that MDMA is effective as a treatment for things like post-traumatic stress, that certainly speeds things along. I think the um, internet has probably had the the biggest role overall and as the mainstream media has moved uh, more and more onto the internet, probably only really over the past 10 years, because I can think 10 years ago, most radio stations didn't have a a good website. Um, Some of the big commercial radio stations did. Uh, The newspapers were were getting onto it a lot more, but nothing like what they've got today. Um, It was all uh, hidden amongst the the forums, but people were slowly, slowly building into those networks. Even social media is only about 10 years old. I think Facebook is 2008 um, as an Australian thing. Before that, it was all, uh, you had to be a US university student. Um, So I think it's the internet, really, that's been the big changer in in the overall media picture. Mm. It's been phenomenal, though, isn't it? Because it's been almost unanimously positive coverage, you know, right down to the Daily Mail. Um, Oh, I've even seen things in um, the the Christian Monitor. I think it's called really positive, yeah, yeah positive yeah. articles. So. Do you think psychedelics get a hall pass over other substances? I think they do, and I think that um, I think that it's sometimes sometimes not a great thing in certain drug using communities where people can be arrogant uh, about their drug use, and so they kind of get a bit high and mighty. They're, they're in the psychedelic kind mm. of sphere where you're less likely to get police attention, you're less likely to be stigmatised, and they actually use that position to stigmatise people that use other substances. There's a hierarchy. Yeah, there, there, there is in the perception of a lot of people who use drugs and in possibly in the general public as well. And um, I think uh, that even amongst that crowd, uh, people who do get affected by the laws are uh, forgotten or thought of as a myth. Um, The amount of times I've been on, uh, usually it's Facebook groups these days, but forums and things like that, where um, people just have this idea that, um, no, but it's psychedelics, peace and love, man. Like, why would I get arrested for that? No, I'm not going to get in trouble for that. So um, people really have this kind of false armour around them, with psychedelics as well for the most part it works though so it's not that false yeah. <laughs> false in armor most of the time it works and for very few unlucky people um who usually get shamed into not not talking anymore about their um, bad experience because oh they must have done something silly they must have you know had another drug on them <laughs> and sometimes they did so mm. yeah but i think the other way that that sometimes plays out is this perception that because there are these 
well now evidence-based you know clinical trials showing positive benefits for people's mental health people that actually don't agree with these substances and have problems with them um they kind of get shuffled to the side and not listened to so much i think yeah actually that's um come up a bit uh, especially over the past just the past year um with people talking about and it's a bit of a controversial condition because we're not sure that it exists or what it is there are some doctors that um will diagnose and others that won't and it's um hppd or hallucination perceptual per there's another p in there disorder (laughs) hallucination persisting perceptual disorder okay so we've known about that in urban myth terms forever yes flashbacks yeah that's that's where what it's all about um but there are people who you'll find on on the forums and on facebook groups talking about uh what they believe is is a is a debilitative condition that they've got now from taking psychedelics it's not quite clear whether or not it is from psychedelic use or if it's from um, abuse of another substance or co- combination of multiple substances mm-hmm. or if it's a, um, a a sort of psychological thing that's going on in their lives um, but it does often get there are a lot of people who who uh, disregard even probing the question um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's hard because I know a lot of a lot of the time it's because people just don't have the resources. They're asking different questions, and they feel that um, uh, these questions are often asked, I suppose, by people who are less privi- privileged on the education hierarchy. They might not know as much about psychedelics. They might have just heard this, and then they go, "Ah, oh, that explains it for me." So they don't have a good um, depth understanding of their own what's going on with themselves. But they are trying to say, "Hey, I have an issue here." and I'm not sure what it is, and I think it might be related to psychedelic use. And it's interesting you say that that gets hushed up a bit because it's a bit like on the music scene until the last couple of years, things like sexual assault were hushed up because, you know, you have a loyalty to the scene. And I suppose it's the same here. You know, you have people who are really passionate about psychedelics and see the positives, and there is that tendency then to try and gloss over things that aren't so great. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, coming back to the, uh, what is it, hallucination persistent perceptual disorder. (laughs) Well, I've experienced that, so I can speak to it directly. I stopped taking psychedelics in my early 20s for about five years because I'd be in an elevator or something and the the walls of the elevator would start getting all kind of LSD wavy. See, I I feel like I get that too, but I feel like I've always had that and it's not from psychedelics. So I feel feel like it's a reflection of the natural, the natural state of consciousness just doesn't, isn't actually as solid as we think that it is. Possibly. In my experience, I didn't have it previous to using psychedelics very frequently in my early twenties. And after taking a five year break, I haven't had it since. Did you find that distressing then? Well, I just, I, it wasn't overly distressing because it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't the idea of what people might think of as a flashback, this totally immersive experience where reality disappears. It's like reality just kind of got some cracks in it mm. sort of thing. And I found it, it's not that I found it super distressing. It's that I kind of flagged it as a warning sign that like, oh, you might have gone a little bit too far. You better take your foot off the accelerator here or you're going to break your brain. Yeah. So, you know, like, so I just kind of stepped back because I'm like, I actually don't want to end up in a psych ward, like locked away, you know, at 25, you know, if I kept kind of pushing the accelerator. I do want to return a bit to the theme of psychedelic privilege because I was talking to... um Uh, Paul Lostin, who's the founder of The Third Wave, which is one of the many educational resources out there. And he was saying, 
you know, sort of touch wood. He hasn't had any kind of police interest. He's not doing anything illegal per se, but there's always this kind of fine line between um, maybe crossing the line and, and then doing something that's against the law or, or just being very careful and providing information and education. Um, how, do you, how do you negotiate that? <laughs> we speak to speak to good people like uh, Greg Barnes, who's a fantastic lawyer, uh, who takes an interest in these kinds of issues as well as a broad range of other progressive issues. Um, speak to other legal firms, run opinions past lawyers, which again is a privileged thing to do because mm. not everybody can access some um, lawyers that are interested in these. But I think you know there is a network of people, and I, I've found that personally useful because, uh, for example, in Victoria, you're not allowed to uh, sell or distribute books that might contain. Uh, instructions on uh, manufacture, cultivation, uh, a, a whole range of things. Basically, we have a, a book ban in Victoria um, that would include things like um, Alexander Shulgin's books, uh, PCAL and, she- and, and TCAL, because they have uh, sometimes what, what might be considered instructions in them. We think that it would probably be okay because of educational, it's an educational material, but these laws have never been tested. That's just sort of one example, I guess, of there being. That's that's one risk, um, but yeah, we don't get a lot of attention. That's f- for the Australian Psychedelic Society, anyway, mm. um, and even for the radio show, um, we had we've had one complaint. If you feel like complaining, you are actually allowed, but to put it in writing, I told this to a person, uh, and because they were mad at us because we were promoting drugs, apparently, which I don't think we do. We neither condone nor condemn the use of drugs. Uh, we're here to talk about what actually happens in real life. Um, but uh, this person was very upset. Um, I couldn't do anything about it because they literally called during the middle of a show. It's very polite. Told them to write in. They never did. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it mostly feels like we're not having to worry about a lot, but it's in my mind. But then, so um, if a journalist comes along like me and is quite interested in what you do and wants to write about what you do, is that a bit of a double-edged sword? Like in the way you, you would like people to know more about what you do, on the other hand... Well, we can talk about the, the policy area and we can talk about experience broadly. And as long as we're doing that, we're staying both on the right side of the law and um, I think doing a better job of, of promoting good information. Mm. So like we don't, you know, I know I got into my previous experience a minute ago, but we don't need to talk about what we did or didn't do on the weekend. I just don't think it's as relevant to our audience or to the public or to the idea of promoting a public health message when it comes to drugs to kind of get into that, Mm. you know? Like, we can kind of just talk about the fact that people use drugs and these experiences are familiar, Mm. um, you know, and that's that's kind of a way of skirting around that, I think. Yeah, I think it gets to an odd point where I start to start to puzzle again and I know that I mean this is a question that just keeps going round and round over what are we actually trying to do by prohibiting drugs because it's not to reduce harm mm. that's patently true the, the the figures show that we're not reducing harm so what are we actually trying to do with them and obviously what that what we're trying to do is that we're not trying to do it to a lot of people who are, you know, white in their thirty-somethings, uh, you know, working that kind. Because it doesn't happen to to most of us, other than a few um, uh, things like maybe the, the roadside drug testing, for example, because that is so broad. It's not focused on uh, intoxication and it's targeted at festivals. That's maybe one target, but it's relatively benign in terms of penalties. You know, small fines, uh, loss of license. Um, that can extend out. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, I, I want to come. <laughs> I want to come. Okay, so two things on that. Um, 
So I guess, like on your point, Nick, I, I gave a talk at Rainbow Serpent um, on psychedelics and kind of delved into this of like why the prohibition on drugs, well, it was, it was on drugs more broadly, and kind of spoke about it from a cognitive liberty point of view, um, going back into the history of prohibitions, going right back to the Ottoman Empire and the banning of coffee houses where Sufis used to gather, and, um, and it was about politics. Um, it was about the fact that people gathered to talk about politics and those politics may have been subversive to the, to the dominant order of things. And I think that's where traditionally a lot of our prohibitions of substances have come from. It's the fact that people gather together, the fact that black and white people had the audacity to dance together in jazz halls in New Orleans. How dare they? You know, the fact that, the fact that people in South America worship different gods that were inspired by psychedelic use. Like, how dare they not come to the Christian light? You were hearing the voices there of myself and Ash Blackwell uh, speaking with Jenny Valentish. Jenny is a author and uh, journalist. Her website, JennyValentish.com, if you want to uh, see some of her writing. Uh, also uh, author of Woman of Substances, uh, a book about uh, her own experience with, with substances, but um, talking about maybe some of the different experiences that women uh, might have uh, with substance use and substance abuse, two different things, not the same thing. And that's about all we have time for on this New Year's special. I uh, hope you have a fantastic and safe New Year. Remember to take it easy over New Year's. Look after yourself. Look after your mates. If you don't know about something, go and find out. Don't put unknown things anybody. I hope uh, that because you're listening to this show, that's not something uh, that you would do anyway. In the new year, uh, some of the things that we'll be hearing from, uh, we'll have that full interview with uh, Jenny Valentish in the new year. We're also hearing from uh, a guy who is working over in the Netherlands. He is working for one of the um, drug user organisations uh, in the Netherlands that goes out uh, to all sorts of different places uh, around the world uh, to help guide them on their own drug policy and he'll talk to us a little bit about his experiences in places uh, like in Southeast Asia uh, also uh, hearing last year's Rainbow Serpent Festival panel um, but also as I said we'll have a live show at Rainbow Serpent Festival uh, early next year and uh, we'll be hearing that one as well uh, plus all the usual issues that we've been following plus the new website there is lots coming up so please stay tuned and stay subscribed to Encyclopedia. stay tuned right now to 3cr though for querying the air up next happy new year to you enjoy the rest of your sunday this is Encyclopedia. comments complaints or contributions are welcome jump on the 3cr website 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned this has been a 3CR podcast. podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.